it's Imogen from SquarePeg. I hope you're having a great week. Since we last spoke, we launched our weekly newsletter called All Signal, which in a kind of surprising turn of events in that newsletters are kind of dated and who wants to sign up to another email, but it's getting really good feedback. So if you like knowing what's going on in tech globally and you want our best recommendations of must read content and must apply for jobs, then you can sign up at spc.vc. This week in All Signal, my brilliant colleague Casey Flint wrote up a long-form exploration of a new segment of industry called Culture as a Service, and it's just so good. It explores how businesses will build culture, high performance, and engagement in a post-COVID world, and I really recommend it to you. You can sign up now and you'll get this week's edition with Casey's article in your inbox in five minutes. Okay, to today. If you think about David and Goliath stories in the world of tech, you might think about Microsoft and Apple, Virgin and their airlines. But if you're in Australia, there is also one company that comes to mind, Kogan.com. Kogan is an e-commerce store that, from nothing, took on one of Australia's most well-known retailers and kind of won, carving out a huge customer base of its own, tipping over the billion-dollar valuation mark a few years ago. Kogan sells electronics. I have one of the flat-screen TVs in my house, actually, but what's interesting about Kogan is that from their inception, they have pioneered customer experience, data analytics, and the future of e-commerce. But the part that makes Kogan's story relevant and, frankly, fascinating is to do with Kogan's founder, Ruslan Kogan, who has lived a super interesting life beginning in 1982 when he was born in Belarus. My parents arrived in Australia with me and my sister in 1989. They had $90 in their pocket. They were working three to four jobs each, studying English at the same time, and all of the challenges associated with immigration, but at no time did my mum miss a single parent-teacher interview or ask me how the day was or, you know, be there to, uh, to help my sister and I as kids. So uh, we're very grateful for the childhood that we had, but I think it did... It did teach me some very important skills when it comes to entrepreneurship because when you think about what it takes to be an immigrant, it's very similar to what it takes to be an entrepreneur. You've got to drop everything you've got, travel into the unknown, put up with a challenging environment, work your butt off for a potential benefit that may or may not be there. So that's probably why you see a lot of entrepreneur immigrants because It's sort of a pre-selected group of risk takers who like to work very hard. It's been interesting over time because I remember just even little things like you arrive in Australia and I think the first time my parents came back from the supermarket, they're like, oh my God, they've got dog food and cat food here. There was like just even little things like that was a complete shock to them because in Belarus, where we grew up, it's like your pets would eat the leftovers. Like there's no such thing. Like you couldn't walk into a shop and see all this fancy food for your pets. 
So, you know, that's like one of the things I remember. But there was also things like, you know, seeing pineapple that wasn't frozen. In Belarus, it'd be every now and then we the shops would have like bags of frozen pineapple and like just seeing that in the in the shops and you know little things like that along the way but my parents assimilated pretty quickly and um you know studied english learnt english and we were even having barbecues at my uncle's house within a few days of arriving and i guess that never stopped um in our house so like you know embrace the culture and embrace the way of being and obviously my parents have strong accents or less strong now than they were back then but the mindset from the start was we've come here because we want a better life and we want to be australian and we want things you know the way aussies do them and that that was a a big motivator at squarepeg we meet a lot of founders who are first or second generation immigrants Actually, most of our team is the same, and I recognize a lot of similarities between Ruslan's experience and the experience of so many other founders with a similar background. The ambition, the drive to make something of themselves, make the move stick. I find it really inspiring. But to take us back to Ruslan pre-Kogan, pre-business, back to when he was a kid, turns out he was right at home in the classroom, even if he got kicked out a lot. I absolutely loved school. Um, was I a good student? Or depends. Academically, like I always um, had good marks, especially in the sciences and mathematics and, and those fields. But you could probably classify me as a bit mischievous and spent quite a bit of time being kicked out of the classroom and not necessarily in the classroom. Uh, reports would often say things like easily distracted or distracts others and things like that. So uh, I, I loved school and I loved the social element of it. And I really, really enjoyed the academic side of things. And I had, you know, my mum is a big driver in my life and a big reason as to a lot of motivation and drive comes from. And she was always pushing me to do more, pushing me to try more things, pushing me to study harder and, and things like that. Like I remember bringing home a math test and, um, you know, usually if I bring home a math test and it was like 94% or 95% and I'd give it to mum, she'd be really upset and tell me to to study harder. So I bring home a math test where I got 100% and I thought, wonderful mum is going to finally be happy and I give it to mum and she's looking at it and she turns it over and she's like she's got this upset or unsatisfied look on her face and I'm like mum I can't do better than that and she's like yes you can look at all this blank space you could have written out to the teacher all the other stuff that you know so that's the that's the sort of push that I had from from my mum to study harder. And during the time, I thought, oh, no, why is she making me do this and, and all of that? But in hindsight, I appreciate it so much. Ruslan is pretty close to his mum. And this won't be the last time Ruslan mentions her and how influential she is in his life. In fact, once he had the idea for Kogan, it was a shopping trip with his mum that helped forge the beginning of the company. We'll get into that in a sec, but right now you need to hear where the idea came from in the first place. 
It happened over time. So I went to college in the US for a semester at the University of Miami. And I remember when we got there, there was quite a few international students and all the international students got together and went to Walmart to buy our bar fridges for our dorm rooms. And then we had to like schlep them back to our dorm rooms and take them on the bus and then the train. And it was like a full day excursion. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, we had a hard earned thirst and somewhere to keep our beer cold. So all was good. But then the next day we saw all the American kids just had their mini bar fridges delivered to their dorm rooms by the FedEx drivers. So uh, they had gone and ordered them online and then found out, having a chat to a few of them, that not only did they have their bar fridges brought to them, they paid a fraction of the price that we paid. And, you know, it got me thinking at that point. There's Walmart, something that we've studied at university a lot, and economies of scale and supply chains and massive optimization projects and so on. And uh, there you have that sort of business. And then you can have a business where it's an online retailer that is able to operate more efficiently than that. So that sort of that idea stuck in my head. And then finished uni, went traveling a bit, returned to Australia, started a corporate job, and flat screen TVs were, you know, just starting out at that point. That they were becoming a big thing. And even though I was earning a decent salary, I went to shop around for a flat screen TV and couldn't afford it. And then so I started thinking, oh, maybe I should contact a few factories and maybe I can buy a sample from them. And then I um, linked that back to what I'd seen in the US and thought, well, here's a perfect business model for an online direct-to-consumer retailer. You've got an up-and-coming product that is going to be mass market soon. And it's a brilliant product for e-commerce because online retail is all about maximum value per cubic centimeter. And, you know, it's you couldn't sell water tanks nationwide online because by the time you sent a water tank from Melbourne to Sydney, the shipping would cost you more than the water tank. Whereas an LCD TV, uh, expensive product in a thin box worked perfectly. So that's how the idea started. This simple idea, contact a factory, start making affordable tech and sell directly to the consumer online stuck with Roslyn but it hadn't been done before in Australia in a way that he was imagining it. The retail landscape still relied on big brands and in-person sales, and to top that off, Roslyn still had doubts himself. And on a more practical note, he also didn't have any money. It seemed like a gamble. Would people even buy online if he managed to set up a site? What had happened was I had the idea for Kogan, but I had no money. So I needed to find a way to fund the business. And having spoken to a few business leaders at the time, they were telling me that no one would ever buy TVs online. Online is for little things like books and CDs and TVs isn't going isn't gonna to work online. So um, I went uh, furniture shopping with my mom and there was a item of furniture that she wanted and I helped her negotiate a better price on it and then when they came to the cash register she paid for the item and it was going to be delivered in I think 60 days or you know it was 
like standard furniture and and then we walked away and I'm like, Mum, you just paid for something in full and you're not going to even receive it for a while. And my mum was like, yeah, that's just how it works. And that gave me the inspiration to like, okay, well, maybe if someone is buying a big ticket item and they can get a significant saving on it, then they can wait. Uh, so I went and for the website, ran a pre-sale. Uh, because I knew what what I the TVs that I could uh, import, I knew the price uh, that I could land them for. I knew the price the stores were selling it for, and I was able to give people a really great discount. And then I started a pre-sale, and transactions started coming through, and it clearly showed that yeah, people are willing to pay upfront for a big ticket item if there's a saving. So that that was the inspiration for how to fund the business. There wasn't, there weren't. Uh, too many square pegs around at that point or uh, venture capitalists that thought, oh, you know, the internet's the future. Let us invest in some of those businesses. So yeah, had to find a way to run pre-sales to fund it. So we cracked the sales component, but Roslyn still needed the product itself. So he turned to the internet to find manufacturers at the source in China. And when I say that he went to the internet to find the source, I don't mean to negotiate the deals online. I mean to find addresses because he literally went to China to visit factories. When he landed, he couldn't even communicate properly to taxi drivers about where he was trying to get to. And he ended up traveling around the factories by ringing them up on his phone, passing the call to a cab driver and letting them talk it out until they knew where to take him. But through that, he found the key to his whole company, working directly with the manufacturers. So that was a big part of forming the business that when I started researching the LCD TV market, at that time, there were only four panel manufacturers of LCD panels. It was Samsung, LG, Hitachi, and Sharp. And no matter which TV you bought, and it, there were hundreds or thousands of brands worldwide, the main component being the panel came from one of those manufacturers. And that was a bit of an eye-opener for me because I'm like, if you look at these TVs, they were ranging in the stores from $2,000 to $10,000 for a certain size, whereas the majority of the components were coming from the same place. So what you're really doing there is funding the marketing budgets of the various brands. And here I was with an idea that said, well, look, I don't have any stores, I don't have any marketing budget, but e-commerce and the internet is a new way to reach customers. And it's a new way to reach customers very efficiently. And that's how this business model is going to work. Let's see if I advertise a really good price for a TV, will people buy it? And, you know, like we discussed previously, not only did they buy it, they were happy to pay upfront and wait a uh, month or so for their TV. So the internet as a commerce communication channel really worked. And the componentry was something that, you know, told me that, hang on a second, that this idea is really going to work because people are misinformed currently when they're making purchase decisions on these products because people have learned over time to use brands as a marker of quality or specifications. So if you rewind 20, 30 years ago, people would say, oh, I'm buying a Grundig TV 
because it's German and they make good TVs. Or I'm buying a Sony TV because it's a high-end Japanese TV or so on. And people were just associating brands with quality. Along comes the internet and it means that all of a sudden you can list all of the specifications of your product. You can list the exact components that the product uses. You can let people compare them side by side. You can let people read reviews of the product and see what other people who have purchased this exact product think and so on. So it really enabled the communication of that point, which is essentially what it was, saying that, hey, people don't really understand what they're buying in this space. We can use the internet to not only make a sale more efficiently, but to properly communicate to people and make them a more informed purchaser at time of purchase. Roslyn wasn't just innovating on the e-commerce front either. He was making some pretty big and unusual moves in the marketing department. In particular, Roslyn started a pretty public media war with one of the biggest electronic sales names here in Australia, Jerry Harvey, the founder of Harvey Norman, a multi-billion dollar business. It's a legendary David and Goliath battle, and when I mentioned to a couple of friends that Roslyn was coming on the podcast, this battle was the one thing they made me promise to dig into. And as it turns out, it's a far weirder, more delightful story than I'd imagined. It's interesting because, once again, that's something that uh, was inspired from the college days and probably not your usual inspiration for a business lesson. I like Eminem and listening to his albums and tunes and, you know, liked it all through college. And I remember I listened to an Eminem diss of Ja Rule. And I had barely heard of Ja Rule at that point. And all of a sudden, Eminem was in this battle with Ja Rule. And it's like Ja Rule would say something about Eminem and I'd download it and listen to it. Then Eminem would respond and say something about Ja Rule. And they went back and forth for a while. And I remember hearing Eminem's last response in which he said, I'm not going to respond to you anymore because I've sold you more records than you could ever sell yourself. And obviously, I, I didn't have a challenger brand at that time, so it didn't mean that much to me then, but it, but it stuck in my head. And, you know, fast forward a few years and Kogan's already up and running and selling a few TVs and we're undercutting the competition and getting lots of customers and amazing customer reviews and everyone's really happy with what we're doing. And today, tonight, uh, contact us to do a story because they've, they've seen a lot of feedback and they've seen our prices and so on. And today, tonight's out at our office filming the story. And whenever the cameras are off, I was telling them things like, oh, if Jerry Harvey saw these prices, he would go nuts. You know, he would, oh my God, he would lose it. This is... Uh, these are such incredible prices. So I, I was sort of, you know, being a bit provocative, like the kid at school that might be, oh, did you hear what that guy said about your mum? And then trying to provoke a fight to happen. You know, doing a bit of that. And, you know, inspired by the Eminem and Ja Rule uh, episode, thinking if I can get this guy to respond to me, this would be, this would be incredible. 
So then we gather for pizza with a few of our staff. I think we had probably 10 to 15 team members at that time. We gather for pizzas in the office that evening to watch the Today Tonight story. Today Tonight's story comes on. Good evening and thanks for joining us. First tonight, the retail rebel who thinks we're all paying way too much for the latest in television technology. And then they cut to footage of Jerry Harvey standing there with a printout of the Kogan website. For someone to get up like this guy and say that he's cheaper than us, that's absolute rubbish. And then it just all blew up from there. So he responded and then the media just took it away from there, which was which was great for our business. We were probably doing $10 million of annual sales at that point. Harvey Norman was probably doing $5 billion plus. So, you know, we should never have been mentioned in the same conversation as them, like a different, different scale of businesses. And, you know, he's an incredible entrepreneur that's transformed Australian retail and done incredible things. So we should never have been even merely mentioned in the same sentence, but it did give us a lot of attention and it did let, let us explain our story and explain why we think our business model is really good. And then here we are today. Taking on Harvey Norman, one of Australia's retail giants, and it wasn't just this one little stunt. Roslyn really pulled an M&M and turned this into a bit of a war. While he didn't always get a response, he initiated tongue-in-cheek ad campaigns that showcased his low prices. The big retailers spend big bucks on TV ads like this, and guess who pays for it? You! So now we're having a 20% price hike to pay for this ad. Until midnight Sunday, 22-inch TV with DVD was 349 now inflated to 419 to pay for this ad. And honestly, I find this hilarious. When I was at Sendall, a logistics startup, we got sued by Australia's National Postal Service for a tagline that kind of sounded similar to theirs. And in the end, the media covering the post office suing us brought us more customers than basically anything else that we did that month. It was amazing. And while on the surface, it's easy to attribute Kogan's success to Roslyn's funny, spicy, splashy ads. In practice, the company is built on data on efficiency and customer experience and redefining the sales process. And Roslyn has one company in particular that he holds in high esteem as a role model for refining this process. McDonald's, or as we call it in Australia, Macca's. I was uh, at a house party, like we had a massive night out at a house party. And then at about 4 a.m., a few of us went to Macca's and we get to Macca's and I, I was being a bit of a smart ass. I, I ordered something like, oh, I want a, I want a Big Mac, but only one of the uh, patties being a chicken patty, the other one being a beef patty, and then take this ingredient out and put this one in and and whatever like you know I'd, I'd had a I'd had a few drinks and I was being a bit of a smart ass and I did this fully custom order and like 25 seconds later they're like oh here you go sir with your order and I remember just opening it up and just being in a state of wow for like a minute like they had got it absolutely perfect and I that night I remember just you know going to bed thinking like how did they do it and then the next morning waking up going like I, I want to learn more about this business because 
you know, scientific processes and efficiency is very important. And that is one business that's probably led the world in that regard. Like, you know, think, think whatever you want of their food and how it tastes or whether it's healthy or unhealthy or any of that. One thing they have definitely been a global leader in is a scientific approach to processes. And so then I remember like doing a bit of reading about it and they'd even done things like they used to have just a normal salt shaker over the fries, but they realized that that was too open to error because what you think is enough salt might be very different to what somebody else thinks is enough salt. So they invented this device where you just turn it and it like evenly and perfectly spreads salt over all the chips. And I'm like reading more into it and thinking I've got to get a job here. So I went... I went and applied. I thought, you know, let me spend a bit of time working at Macca's and um, let's, I want to learn more about how this organization uh, has been able to achieve these scientific processes. And then on top of that, to globally scale it, where you can walk into a McDonald's in Elston Week and then walk into a McDonald's in Carlton and then walk into a McDonald's in New York and then walk into a McDonald's in Shenzhen and the Big Mac is identical. So as anyone wanting to know more about a business might do, Ruslan applied for a job and got turned down. It wasn't my first rejection from McDonald's. It was uh, my second rejection from McDonald's because uh, the moment I turned 13 and nine months, I applied for a job at Coles Elstonwick and at Macca's and uh, got the job at Coles, but Macca's knocked me back. It's worth noting that this was a few years into Kogan as a business that Roslyn applied to McDonald's. He was already a multimillionaire running a successful company, so he wasn't exactly put out of a job. And although we didn't get that insight into McDonald's processes, Roslyn was already acutely aware of what made his e-commerce business model an efficient one and how to tailor the perfect e-commerce experience to his customers. Uh, that's been a very important part of our growth story, our ability to be able to use the information in our business to better serve and delight our customers. Because we have never been historically a business that has the deep pockets that our competitors do to be able to spend money on massive advertising to drive customers uh, to our stores. We had to do it more efficiently and then pass on those savings in the form of better prices because what we stand for is great value, having really sharp pricing and a great user experience. And data is a big part of achieving that because if we can reduce our marketing expenses, it makes us a more efficient business. It means we can have sharper pricing and show the right product to the right person at the right time and that's you know it's a big uh, competitive advantage of good digital businesses like bricks and mortar stores uh, have a lot of advantages over e-commerce you know e-commerce companies can build a relationship with a customer but there's nothing like being there in front of them in person so once you walk into a store if you've got a good salesperson and there's plenty of good people out there doing that job they can talk a customer through certain things and help them out and build a relationship there's advantages to that one of the advantages in e-commerce and a good digital business 
is while we can't have that in-person interaction, we can do other things like personalize a store per visitor. So when you go to Kogan.com, it will look different to when I go to Kogan.com. Uh, and that that is something that we need to flaunt because it's very important for every business, no matter whether they're digital or not, or what industry they're in, to flaunt their competitive advantage and really drive it home. Now, when you walk into a shop, they can't change the layout of a store for you, knowing that, oh, you're, you're not interested in Blu-rays at all. You don't even have a Blu-ray player. So like, let's just totally remove all of that stuff. But you are really interested in the Nintendo Switch and you are really interested in SLR cameras. So like, let's put them at the front of the store. And you know, imagine a shop that was able to do that. That's essentially what we can do in the e-commerce environment. And we wouldn't be good business operators if we just totally ignored uh, that structural advantage we have over our competitors. A totally customizable store tailored to your needs. It sounds pretty fantastical, but it's the reality of pretty much every e-commerce site you visit. Ruslan have found the advantages of this model and brought them to the Australian market in a big way. In 2016, 10 years after Kogan was founded, it listed on the ASX with a $50 million IPO. In terms of listing the business, it was an interesting experience for us because you'd grown the business to a certain size and you'd operated it in a private environment. And then you you make this transition into public life, which for us as a business, it it was a case of, well, what are the positives? What are the negatives? And it was a matter of the positives outweighed the negatives. We were capital constrained in the business. It was actually 10 years into the business was our first ever capital raising into our IPO. It had been funded with that pre-sale we discussed previously, you know, in its early days and then just organically funded uh, out of profitability up until that point. But we knew we're leaving a lot on the table due to lack of funding. And um, so, you know, access to capital was a big one. Also, the ability to be able to have staff share in the pie in a meaningful manner, being that you know they, they would have shares in a publicly traded company and uh, the incentives around that. So, uh, you know, the, the reasons to do it outweighed, uh, outweighed any, you know, concerns about, well, one of the biggest concerns is will be there's a lot of disclosure as a public company and all your competitors get to see what you're doing. All your competitors get to see, hey, they just had a really good half. What have they been doing and, and so on. Uh, but life for us as a public company has been pretty good. The hardest thing around it is, you know, obviously with a lot of your team members now having having a piece of the pie is, and we've been able to successfully do this, but that's build a culture where, your focus on the long-term business plan and executing what we need to do in order to keep delighting our customers and growing the business. Because there's often a lot of external noise as a public company. There's constant commentary going on as to your share price and what that's doing. Whereas a share price really reflects something that happened you know, it's like what what business building initiatives you've been doing a while ago. It's not a it's not a reflection on how you're going yesterday or a week earlier or, or things like that. It's a 
It's generally a reflection on, did you put the right plan in place five years ago? And are you executing that plan well or not? And so keeping the team focused on that has been something that uh, has been important to us. But yeah, all, all in all, the, the positives by far outweigh the downsides. I asked Roslyn about his motivation. With so many ups and downs, what keeps him going through the harder moments? I think in the first few years, you know, and the business was tiny at that point. You, you could say I was a sole founder, but then David Schaefer, who's a executive director in the business and business partner from very early days, came on board. Goran Stefkowski, our CTO, um, and uh, you know, had a lot of had a lot of support through the business and our and our senior exec team, and that is over time you realise how that is the most delightful part about being in business is the people that you get to work with and you know the people you jump out of bed to come to the office to you know, discuss things with and have arguments with and have debates with and the challenges and all of that associated with it. So the business would not be where it is today without our amazing team. And um, they are so focused on innovation. They are so focused on delighting our customers. And and they provide that that support in our business, not only to myself, but to a lot of the junior members in our team as well. So you realize in business that no matter how good your idea is and no matter how big the market is and no matter how quickly the market is growing, what it comes down to is that the people you surround yourself with. And I I couldn't be any happier about that with Kogan. E-commerce looked a lot different in 2006 when Kogan started to today, and we spent a bunch of time talking through how e-commerce will continue to evolve. I think that the one thing that will never change is that the businesses that are customer-focused will keep winning customers, and those that aren't will keep losing market share. You know, a question I get asked a lot is, you know, is bricks and mortar dead? Where do you see bricks and mortar in 10 years and and so on? And it's still, you know, you open the papers and every few weeks there's a bricks and mortar store that's struggling or having a tough time. But what it comes down to is whichever way you're doing it, whether it's e-commerce or bricks and mortar or through Instagram or whatever, whatever channel you're using, you've got to be customer focused and continue to innovate and find ways to delight your customer. Like, go walk past an Apple store. There's no doom and gloom in retail. Apple stores are pumping. Zara stores are pumping. Whichever business is innovating is is doing amazing. Like, Nespresso stores, always full of people. And that's one thing e-commerce will never be able to do. Like, you walk into a Nespresso store, you can try the different new coffees and smell the aroma and so on. Like. Oh, well, at least I can't see us doing that online anytime soon unless there's like a built-in little coffee attachment to your laptop. Uh, but yeah, so in that sense, you've just got to be customer focused. And yeah, there's a lot of customers doing uh, purchasing through social media at the moment and certain categories. And if those businesses and those using those channels keep looking after their customers and continually innovating and finding ways to delight them, they'll win. 
we're, we're focused on a similar thing. It's like we're constantly just focused on what does our customer want? How do we give them a bigger range? How do we give them better prices? How do we do faster delivery? Constantly, constantly thinking about these things because the moment we stop or at the moment we don't innovate and the moment we don't uh, keep incrementally improving our offer for our customers, someone's going to take our market share. So Roslyn keeps innovating. He's constantly improving on his company and his insights on the future of e-commerce industry are indisputable. Customer-focused businesses are the ones that will survive, no matter how much the market changes. But in recent years, Roslyn's began to invest himself, putting his money back into early-stage companies he's passionate about. And I wanted to know what kind of founder he's looking for. My family office has been doing a bit more investing and trying to support young and up and coming entrepreneurs. Uh, A lot of it uh, in the early stage from my perspective comes down to the person you're investing in. Because when a business is that early in its life cycle, you can do whatever spreadsheets you want and model it out as much as you want. It's not even gonna be remotely correct. So what you're looking at essentially there is, is it the right people at the steering wheel and will they steer this business in the right direction? Because a lot of businesses pivot many, many times. Even if you look at Kogan, if you rewind 15 years, I thought this was a LCD TV business that just sold LCD TVs online. It took only a few months for that to start to become wrong. And it was an LCD TV and digital photo frame business. Then it was an LCD TV and digital photo frame and Blu-ray player business. And now you can go onto Kogan and get anything from pet insurance all the way through to bath towels. Like businesses pivot and change. And essentially I'm, I'm assessing, is it really good people driving this business and will they be the right people to change direction and pivot and um, assess what the customer requirements are along the way and then on top of that it's obviously the high level is it the right industry is it a product or service that is in demand and people will want down the track so one thing a lot of the businesses the family office has invested in have in common is that i use the product before the investment so just totally on my own like land checker i was using nothing to do with land checker and thought well this is a great product let's get in touch uh, with the guys so that that's usually the approach from furniture shops to m&m to mcdonald's you could say that roslyn's inspiration sound out as a little different to what you hear from most founders on his scale A lot of his drive and motivation comes from some of the smaller moments in life. What he sees is the most important. When you break things down, it's, uh, there's certain things in life that that actually matter. And the the other things are obviously less important. And it's important that no matter what you do or what you achieve or what things like the business does, that those don't change. Like, Going to mum's house for a few dinners a week is more important for me than any business meeting. Like, that is the real stuff that that matters and your relationship with your family and the health of your family and spending time with, with the people that matter. So 
all of that is number one priority. And business is very important because it, you know, it's your it's your livelihood and it's a challenge. And you probably spend the majority of your thinking time thinking about all of that, but you can't let it get to your head. Like we operate a business that makes nice products cheaper for people. Yes, great. And we, we spend a lot of a lot of time doing it, but that that's all it is. It's a it's a business that is making people's lives a little bit better and um, we devote our, our business energy to that but um, so you know th- that's probably how I'd I'd summarize it in terms of myself like not not much has changed like my friends haven't changed in 20 plus years um, you do start to get less time so you've got to be a bit more selective about you know what you do so like I said going to mum's house for dinner becomes very important my my wife is a big part of you know keeping us grounded and ensuring that we pay a lot of attention to the right sort of things as well like when we go traveling which seems like so long ago now but whenever whenever we'd go somewhere like the things I find exciting is like take me to a factory like show me how taps are made or show me in Italy, I'd be like, let's go to, we went to Parma and we went to, um, you know, the cheese factories there and, and things like that. So I, I'm the sort of like, take me to a factory and show me how things are made. And my wife keeps us cultural. So she'd make sure that whatever art galleries or opera performances or ballet or any of that is um, is in the city that we're currently in. Um, she'll not only take me there, but then explain it all in a way that gets me at least a little bit interested in it. So that's that's something I think re- really important as well. Because if I were to have it my way, and you know, people like my wife and my mum didn't keep me grounded, it's uh, I could very easily just spend 120 hours a week working and and not thinking about anything else. That's it for this week's episode. A reminder that our new weekly dispatch, All Signal, has started hitting inboxes. So if you haven't already, head to spc.vc to subscribe. Thanks, as always, to Rami Sher, our wonderful producer, Ruslan for his time, and the Square Peg team. See you next time.